Welcome to the 66th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled The Forest, America in the 1830s, art historian Alexander Nemiroff explores the Hudson River School painters and their contemporaries, focusing on what their art did and did not show of the teeming world around them. The forest serves as a metaphor for the unruly and wooded realms of lived experience to which art can only gesture. The lectures present a fundamentally new account of Thomas Cole, John Quidor, James Fenimore Cooper, and other artists and writers of that time. This fourth lecture, entitled Animals Are Where They Are, was originally delivered by Professor Nemiroff at the National Gallery of Art on April 23rd, 2017. A tobacco bag made from the skin of a black-footed ferret, created by an Eastern Plains tribe around 1840, both is and is not a creature that once roamed through the woods. Augmented by leather festooned by porcupine quills, wool cloth, silk ribbon, bird claws, brass bells and buttons, metal cones, a feather and animal hair, the ferret is exalted beyond its padding, ravenous life on the forest floor. Yet it is still the same, itself as it ever was. What is the special quality of animals that remains in works of art, even after they have been primped and styled and transformed into sacred and separate objects? How might John James Audubon's depictions of birds have explored this same idea, that the creature, no matter how represented, always remains what and where it is. Okay, welcome um, to the fourth of my six lectures on the forest, America in the 1830s. And today I want to talk, as you can see, about this topic concerning animals. And let's recall what is the purpose or the exploration of these talks, which is about uh, the relation of art and life. So in that category, life, I'd like to now try to think about animals and animals as they were then and how the particular challenge of representing animals um, put pressures and also possibilities on this task or this um, calling to merge those two impossibly different seeming things, namely art and life. So I'd like to start with this piece here, which is, um, is a medicine bag uh, from a Native American tribe, pri probably from the Great Lakes um, region, uh, Ojibwe tribe. M most likely, I know an art historian named Shawan Canoe, who is an Ojibwe, and she speculates that this bag may well come from her own tribe. The date of it is circa 1840. And, um, you know, right then and there, you can see it's located in our time that we're exploring in this period. It's a remarkable example of something that is preserved from that time as having this function. And what is that function? It is a medicine bag that is an object that would have been carried by uh, someone vested with sacred uh, powers and responsibilities, uh, someone who could uh, not just cure people with some of the contents contained within this bag, which is likely made of a um, black ferret that might have been exchanged uh, via trade with tribes further west, a black ferret that has been adorned, as you can see, with things not native to a black ferret, for example, um, <laughs> Uh, eagle talons here or hawk talons here as kind of ears which signify the sacredness of the object right away. And indeed, the manner of displaying this as I am doing right now is a notably gray area as some of you will appreciate um, this being a sacred object, even the display of it at the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City uh, can raise some questions, but nonetheless, it's a matter of individual choice. I show it to you here. In any case, uh, eagle talons, but also brass buttons here, perhaps taken from a tunic that uh, cover, or I would say, enrich the eyes. Um, you know, brass bells, 
gla glass beads, um, wool cloth, some silk as well. And the emphasis on shininess is part of the life, the liveliness of this object. If you focus, for example, on the, uh, the brass buttons here, as uh, the great scholar of Native American art, Ruth Phillips, talks about the importance of shininess in objects like this as indicating things of the upper spheres, the upper heavens, and the power of those who dream of such um, realms uh, to, you know, as indicating something to do with uh, uh, glories or visions that are not accessible to us in our ordinary uh, ter terrestrial state. Uh, things that shine, that radiate. Also, um, like the brass bells and so on. But even inside this bag too, we have to understand in the rhetoric of inside and outside with this bag, the um, kindred um, sort of um, revelatory or spiritual power uh, of this Manitou, as it would be so called, because in it would be contained not only the medicines uh, that, that, that give it its term midday or medicine bag, but also um, even other things that might be thought to enliven it. Shawan tells me, for example, that it would not be beyond the realm of possibility for the owner of this bag to put a live animal like a mouse or something like it inside it in order to um, you know, portray its ever livingness, its livingness beyond death and what you could say in terms of our lecture beyond being turned into an artifact. Um, also, you know, how it was used. Um, Shawan thinks it was probably shaken, you know, as you can probably tell by the bells and so on, and that the, the sound, uh, the sound of the bells, but also the, the blurry vision of the different, um, the, you know, the, 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 the creature in agitated being in the performance or ritual would be a cons uh, another form of its lifelikeness too. So what we could just take away in the most provisional way here is that this artifact represents for its culture a way that turning something into a fixed representation, which not coincidentally involves killing it, um, is not commensurate with, with death or the end of life, but is in fact more than just a replication of that life, but is an enhancement, a vivification of it. Uh, lest we say that the journey into art is always a journey into f fixity, frozenness, fossilization, this work would seem to suggest that the opposite is true. When we turn to kindred creatures from the 1830s that once scurried around in plains and forests then that were collected and portrayed by others, not Native Americans, like this rabbit here uh, that was shot and killed and preserved by a notable naturalist of that time from Philadelphia named John Kirk Townsend. Um, we could say that, well, the opposite is true of this black ferret bag we just saw, that the transit into um, art, artifact, science, uh, knowledge uh, is, you know, renders the creature mute, dead, gone, that there's an incommensurability between life and art here. As soon as you're tagged, you know, this is, um, this is it. Uh, the, the creature is the body bag of itself. Um, and so these are a, a kind of marvelously poor kind of uh, adornment compared to the bells and the the uh, buttons that we just saw before. But let's just pause, not so quick, because I think, and it's one of the mysteries of that time, the 1830s, for example, that I'm not sure that Townsend or others would have regarded the fixing or you know, fr freezing of life, like with the rabbit here, as, as, as doing an injustice to the, the, the godliness of this, but this creature, but rather, in fact, enhancing, portraying it. So here's a quotation from a book published in 1836, a Reverend William Kirby, an Englishman, but he's, you know, this is a book that Hawthorne mentions. We may suppose each kingdom of nature, he's talking about instincts here and likening it in a familiar analogy to like mechanisms or automatic 
operations, uh, instincts and automatic operations, the animal as machine. We may suppose a king, each kingdom of nature, so each sphere, uh, to be represented by a separate cylinder as on an organ that's playing, having noted upon it as many tunes as there are species differing in their respective instincts, and that the constant impulse of an invisible agent, so God, and God's um, deputies, angels, etc., um, causes each cylinder to play in a certain order all the tunes noted upon it. So you could say, um, you know, that you know the the, the whirly gig of the natural world in in its un ever unfolding and ever moving is if you like, what is frozen here, but somehow in a way that maybe is difficult for us to understand is also vivified in the freezing, in the artifying that we see on the left. Kirby goes on, this, you know, this, this unfolding, this playing of the organs of the instincts uh, produces that universal harmony of action resulting from that due intermixture of concords and discords according to the will of its almighty author in that infinitely diversified and ever-moving sphere of beings which we call nature. So it's, it's finally a kind of choice. You could say that there's a spiritual animal on the right, um, a Manitou, and just um, a, a kind of um, desiccated scientific specimen on the left, but it's possible to think of each as a kind of religious talisman from that time, attesting in different spheres to the kindred belief uh, in uh, God, a God's presence in the world and the animal kingdom as constituting one special venue for the apprehension of that presence. When I look at these two, though, I find, I find mm, this one to be far more marvelous and enchanting and it makes me think that maybe, despite my quotation of Reverend Kirby, there is something to be said for the way, you know, um, the will to science here is the end of life. But I want to explore Townsend as a maker of art, just a little, you know, a little further, maybe a kind of inadvertent artist, someone who did not freeze frees life with his artifying, though he needs, in a way, my help to become the artist he didn't know he was. So, how so? Well, this is a specimen um, that's here at the uh, National Museum of American History uh, in Washington, Townsend's Bunting, it's called, and you can see the date here on the tag, May 11th, 1833, and that's what interests me here. When we think about the transit of this creature, which looks not only good and dead, but depressingly dead, like impossible to do anything except pity at its state, and that state becomes all the more uh, vivid when we read Townsend's own account of his pursuit of this creature, this unlucky creature. I obtained this bird in New Garden, Pennsylvania, so that's in Chester County. It was first observed sitting listlessly upon a fence rail, but upon being approached, flew to the top of an adjacent tree from which it emitted a succession of lively notes somewhat resembling the song of the indigo bird, indigo bunting, but louder and more varied. Its flight was performed by short, quick jerks of the wings and undulations of the body. It was with extreme difficulty that I approached sufficiently near to shoot, it being very shy and watchful and passing rapidly from tree to tree. But shoot, he did, and he killed it, and he was attracted to it because he had never seen such a creature before, and he felt that there was discovery and scientific advancement uh, happening before his eyes, and hence the imperative to make the thing into a specimen and not only bring it to its death, but also seemingly make it incapable of being alive in any sphere for all time, however. As a historian, I'm always fascinated by particular days. So in my own kind of gullible, naive way, I simply look at this and say, well, May 11th, 1833, that's interesting. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything else besides this bird being shot to death that happened on May 11th, 1833. But let's, let's look and see, and I'm just, 
give you three examples of things that happened then and there with the idea of building a history that is actually, to which this bird's death is not ancillary, but is in fact the center, the kind of umbilicus of the story I'm about to tell. So one thing I discovered is a poem published in the Baltimore Saturday Visitor on that same Saturday by someone named Tamerlane, who was really Edgar Allan Poe. And it's called Two, Two. so it's a, it's a eulogy, and it says, sleep on, sleep on. Another hour, I would not break so calm a sleep to wake to sunshine and to shower to smile and weep. Sleep on, sleep on like sculptured thing, majestic, beautiful art thou, such sure seraph shields thee with his wing and fans thy brow. We would not deem thee child of earth, for O oh, angelic is thy form, but that in heaven thou hadst thy birth, where comes no storm. To mar the bright, the perfect flower, but all is beautiful and still, and golden sands proclaim the hour which brings no ill. Sleep on, sleep on, some fairy dream perchance is woven in thy sleep, but O oh, thy spirit calm, serene, must wake to weep. So it is, if you like, a kind of art historical montage where I'm showing you one thing next to another, which is very close, I think, to the kind of magic wheelhouse of what art history is, um, almost in the manner of you know, cinematic montage where a, a person laughing is shown in close-up in one moment, and then if it's a kitten licking milk from a bowl, then the combination of those two shots creates one meaning, if it's someone falling down the steps or a baby carriage uh, going down the steps, let's say, uh, the laughing seems inhumane, cruel, uh, 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 shocking. So there's an arbitrary to, the, to this that we need to, I would say, work through. Here's my second example, May 11th, 1833. Turns out to have been a very interesting date in history. Here's a, a painting at the Smithsonian American Art Museum by a Tennessee artist of Andrew Jackson, then in his second term as president. It's a painting from 1835. But what it turns out happened in early May 1833, there was the first ever assault on an American president, which was reported in the papers on May 11th, 1833, the first ever. And it consisted of a um, lieutenant in the Navy who named Robert Randolph, who had been relieved of his duties the week before for having embezzled money, relieved by Andrew Jackson himself, who approaching Jackson in Alexandria, Virginia, as Jackson made his way down to Fredericksburg to lay the cornerstone of a monument in honor of George Washington's mother, this disaffected, outraged Lieutenant Robert Randolph came up to Jackson and tweaked his nose, which was the sign of calling him a liar. And, you know, in Southern speak, you know, the breeze there, the man speak, it was, you know, a kind of challenge to a duel. Um, May 11th, 1833, this is from a Providence, New Island, New, uh, Providence Rhode Island newspaper. Just read just the open it, opening sentence to give you a sense of the corollary of, of this day and this day, the assault made upon the president is one of the most audacious outrages we have ever heard of, and so on. And it is kind of shocking at any time when there is like the, there is a physical, um, you know, uh, a physical assault on, on the president. Uh, and Jackson would later be the first subject of an assassination, two year assassination attempt two years later but this was sufficiently shocking because it had never happened before. So that's event number two. Event number three, um, all aboard to go to Quebec City from Belfast, Ireland, aboard a ship called Lady of the Lake after the Walter Scott poem. Um, many Irish immigrants coming, coming abroad, um, between 250 and 300 of them. The ship set sail, as you can see, it's leaving uh, 3rd of April. On May 11th, 1833, off the coast of Newfoundland, it struck an iceberg, and actually, the Lady of the Lake and the Titanic really sunk very near to one another, 79 years apart. 
uh, both hit icebergs. And you know, if you look at the passenger list, um, I just excerpted here um, from sort of the middle, getting to the middling part of the alphabet, uh, names, age, status. Some people survived, seem, seem, perhaps survived. I don't know that everyone who's listed as surviving really did survive. Um, Ferguson, Sarah Ferguson, 16, James Ferguson, 19, Pat Ferguson, 20, Mary Ferguson, two, et cetera. Irish immigrants coming over. You know, Matthew um, chapter 10, uh, verse 29, this is where Jesus says, um, not a sparrow falls, but that God um, doesn't see it, you know. Uh, if, you, if we try to inhabit this world of May 11th, 1833, and do so with sufficient imagination as to conjure the religiosity that more than a portion of the populace would have avowed deeply, then we'd have to say that, uh, you know, in the eyes of God, all of this would have been related. It's only our, however you want to call it, like our rationality, our improved powers of skepticism, uh, that allow us to regard all of this as utterly random. But in a more cosmic sense of things, there is a, a kind of radical simultaneity and events are not, imagine, are not just blown into like the randomness of this happened there and that happened there and there's, there's no relation at all. Um, that's God's point of view. There's another way, though, to think about this, and it has to do now with art historical method. What entitles the art historian to bring these things together besides a kind of hocus-pocus or spell chanting? Um, you know, I go to what was the art exhibitions at that time, okay? So the National Academy of Design had just opened up its spring show in New York in May of 1833, and this painting, which we know from the last lecture, which is by Thomas Cole, is called, and it's called Head of a Roman Woman from 1832, was one of the works by Cole on view. And without parsing further that particular work, let me say that the principle of relatedness between the bunting's death and Cole's picture, or indeed any of those things I spoke about, might be understood as novelistic or as the principle that a novelist would recognize and a scholar would not. Which leads to the question of what are the different kinds of um, knowledge and, if you like, wisdom that scholarship and novels and novelists, or scholars and novelists uh, differently produce. And though probably in some deep basement or utter attic of intellectual life, we're all on the same team, it would seem that usually we're not, because uh, you know, novelists, after all, deal in things that are made up. They are gods in the sense that they can bring together Cole's painting and the death of this bird in Pennsylvania because they have the fiat, the license, the, basically the kind of godlike ability to bring unlike things together and to, as it were, make it stick or not in the alternate sphere of the reader's own imagination or hallucination of what that world was. Uh, can, his, can historians link disparate things together by virtue of an essentially novelistic um, enterprise or calling? I would say, as you might guess, yes. The methods of art history, though, and of, and of novel uh, writing are, of course, no easy thing to, uh, to, to, to master or even to get a semblance of, even from within one's own head. So to pursue a little bit further that show at the National Academy of Design in May of 1833, let me explore like the pitfalls or dangers of what is now somewhat dryly called methodology. Uh, in order to um, say that, yes, bringing disparate things together is difficult. So on the screen is two, are two paintings that were exhibited that May of 1833 in New York, one by Cole, 
uh, and one, of course, you know by Samuel Morse, the Gallery of the Louvre. Both Cole and Morse had just returned from overseas, from Europe, and they were proudly displaying the works that they found or that they had painted there. Cole's painting is a kind of pastiche of scenes he had observed in Italy. Uh, a shrine here, a ruined castle, picturesque peasants, um, isolated tree, uh, you know, uh, ruins on the, the crest of the mountain, etc. And it was commented on as such, this painting, which is now in the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester, New York, as being um, perhaps less pleasing than a straight on, as it were, realistic portrayal. But, you know, its powers of pastiche were noted and thought about. Uh, so pastiche can often have a negative t tone. Things are just methodologically are just brought in together uh, helter-skelter, and then it more or less rhymes or coheres into a convincing picture. Um, Morse's, picture. Morse's mode of bringing disparate things together, of course, is somewhat different, and you've already heard my take on this, but you could just describe it as, if you like, a principle of sheer accumulation We've all read bad novels where one thing happens, then another thing happens, then another thing happens, and yeah, there's a room in which all the things that keep happening are just kind of thrown in, but somehow that doesn't constitute a believable network of connection that allows us to suspend our disbelief and feel that all these accumulated things are belong in the same place together. So the perils of being God, or of being, I would just say, more secularly being a creator or being a creative person, having an imagination. And not least, those perils are, you know, being subjected to the world of, of criticism and commentary, which can oftentimes be very trenchant and direct and, and perfectly apt. So there's a great diarist from New York City from this time, Philip Hone, a very aristocratic gentleman, who not long after the death of, the town, of Townsend's bunting, four days after, comments on Morse and Cole. And about Morse, he says, the spring exhibition of the National Academy has just opened. The president, Mr. F.B. Morse and Cole, have contributed the pictures which they painted and brought from Europe. The former, so Morse's, are hard and cold as ever. The warmth of the sunny skies of Italy does not appear to have had any effect upon the worthy president. He is an excellent fellow and is well acquainted with the principles of his art, but he has no imagination. So uh, there is no poetry about his paintings and his prose consists of straight lines which look as if they had been stretched to their utmost tension to form clotheslines. So, <laughs> so your laughter I appreciate, but I, I wince too, uh, having been uh, laughed at so many times in my life. I mean, that, that there's crit criticism is one of the, not just appurtenances, but directnesses of intellectual and artistic life. And it, it, is, it is vivid when it is apt, you know? And I think Hone, Hone was an apt critic, not a mean critic, which unfortunately there are too many of, but an apt critic. What does Hone say about Cole? Um, Cole maintains his ground. His pictures are admirable representations of that description of scenery which he has studied so well in his native forests. And then you could really add a however here. However, his landscapes are too solid, massy, and umbrageous to please the eye of an amateur accustomed to Italian skies and English park scenery. So you can either err on the side of clotheslines or err on the side of umbrageousness, which is more my, I think I'm more falling into the umbrageousness world. And um, it's interesting that they're contained in that word is umbrage, which, you know, as in taking offense. So there's a very complicated notion here of being true to what you do, being as umbrageous as ever, and within that commitment is also a sense of how quick one can be to take offense at the criticism that this is well, of what one does. So the, the kind of beautiful and mystical worlds of art and art criticism are being created as we speak uh, in the 1830s. 
methods brings us to, of course, the most famous of the artists of creatures, depicting creatures at that time. It's John James Audubon, whose dates are 1785 to 1851. And Townsend's bunting created a particular issue for him because it probably is no, so there is no such thing as Townsend's bunting in the sense that there is a distinguishable species or dis, dis, distinguishable identifiable bird. Why is that? Um, well, this is, remains to this day. The bird that Townsend shot is the only specimen that's ever, that's why it's kind of a rock star of the uh, secure um, antiseptic shelving at the Museum of American History. Try to get an appointment to see this bird. It's not easy. <laughs> but this is, this is one of, um, one of Audubon's, you know, this is Audubon's picture of Townsend's finch. It's probably that this is a, either a mutation of uh, a kind of seed-eating bird called a dick sissel, or else a, um, a color variant. It's, it's foxed, it's changed colors from what it was, so you can't, you can't, it's like an old piece of paper that has kind of yellowed and aged. But in any case, what this comparison does is it, portrays Audubon's method. And maybe more broadly for us, as I'm about to say, how if we would connect art and life, we need to understand what were the methods of artists such as Audubon, especially because he's not, he's making the fateful transfer, you know, not from living bird to just stuffed version of the bird, but truly to the alternate medium of a, of a piece of paper. We need to attend to those methods, but also uh, not become so bogged down in them that we fail to see what the artist ultimately produces. So Jennifer Roberts, the great art historian at Harvard, has written a, a book, um, uh, called Transporting Visions, which has the most marvelous, I think, brilliant chapter about Audubon and about his, his commitment to actual size, which is why those books are so huge. They're 39 by 26 inches. Um, finches can be portrayed, you know, kind of uh, you know, somewhat isolated in such an expansive page, but you need those 39 inches to show, say, a flamingo. And even then, of course, the flamingo has to be bent over. And Jennifer does a fantastic job of connecting this commitment to real size to uh, Audubon's uh, need to transport his art, his renderings to around the world so without a loss of their uh, truthfulness. You know, scale, as she says, is the, or size reduction is the enemy of truth and the great distances of antebellum America, not to say the world, imply the vigor and seriousness and almost kind of um, crazy ambition of bringing this off, which, by the way, Audubon did. The Birds of, Amer of America, four volumes, 1827 to 1838, uh, more than 400 prints, and all to, to the size of life, which is a phrase I've used before. Life, um, brought directly onto the page. How did he do it, speaking of methods? Here's his plate 77 of the belted kingsfisher, as he called it, from 1830. And let's, you know, we take this in, but let's, yes, go back behind the scenes to see a little bit of the whys and hows of Audubon's method, the woods that I continually trod contain not only birds of richest feathering, but each tree, each shrub, each flower attracted equally my curiosity and attention and my anxiety to have all those in my portfolios introduce the thought of joining as much as possible nature as it existed. So the, the dream which we've experienced in different forms in this series of, I will not accept the separation of art and life. My drawings, so he goes on to say, have all been made after individuals fresh killed and I think that's the key, fresh killed, sort of in that intermediate zone between death and life. They're not really dead, they're sort of, they've just been shot, they still have the kind of blush of life about them, mostly by myself, and put up before me by means of wires, et cetera, in the precise attitude represented, 
and copied with a closeness of measurement that I hope will always correspond with nature when brought into contact. And indeed, the, con the sense of a contact relic is very important here too, like literally handling the birds. The many foreshortenings unavoidable in groups like these have been rendered attainable by means of squares of equal dimensions affixed both on my paper and immediately behind the subjects before me. So imagine our kingfishers here as undergoing that process. And in fact, Audubon says, off to the creek one day, he's had his revelation of how to do this, how to bring nature onto the page, and down with the first kingfisher I met. I picked the bird up and carried it home by the bill. I sent for the miller and made him fetch me a piece of soft board when he returned. He found me filing into sharp points pieces of wire and proud to show him the substance of my discovery. For a discovery I now had in my brains, I pierced the body of the fishing bird and fixed it on the board. Another wire uh, passed above his upper mandible was made to hold the head in a pretty fair attitude. Smaller skewers fixed the feet according to my notions and even common pins came to my assistance in the placing the legs and feet. The last wire proved a delightful elevator to the bird's tail and at last there stood before me the real mannequin, so real mannequin, that contradiction in terms, but very much to the point of these lectures, of a king's fisher. And if that, one, one can imagine the, you know, a, a board that is placed adjacent to this work as it underwent its uh, watercolor creation from which the print was made and there would be a matter of transferring from one grid to another precisely the actual size of the thing. It's easier to imagine if we look at actually the recreation of Audubon's method as manifest in a recent PBS series, um, and I get these images from uh, Alan Braddock, who's a scholar of American art, painter named Walton Ford, so here is uh, a creature, a, a bird, a whippoorwill-like bird that has been uh, killed, fresh killed, and then placed close to, you know, directly on this gridded uh, board. And then here is the artist. And this is, if you like, to go back to the method idea, which is not about pastiche, is it? And it's not about accumulation. It's about this directness, almost this Shroud of Turin directness that Audubon, uh, a religious person, practiced. And I think as we pause on this and just take stock of our, the fork in our way here, which is we can go down the path of um, how did he do it, and we can be sort of um, gawk at the ghoulishness of it, which uh, has led many people to talk about, for example, what Greg Nobles in his new book on Audubon calls the ornithological gothic of Audubon. And Jennifer Roberts talks about its affiliations with Frankenstein which is from 1818, but if we can go down that path or we can just choose to imagine, I guess, the incredible transit of imagination that is required in the movement from this to this. You know, to conjure a world out of nothing. Uh, this is what artists do. And it might have taken him all day to get even the semblance of that world on page, but it's, it's finally a transformation from inertness to life, and more than that, to a world that constitutes the power and vividness and commitment of Audubon's imagination. Was there a cost in this, you know? It's such a logical question. All these, him and Townsend, who supplied him with a lot of birds, did they did they have nightmares at, at night? I mean, remember I talked in the last lecture about pain and hallucination as constituting, for example, two of the, two of the prices you have to pay to make life and world, or life and art connect. Uh, you know, I don't think Audubon experienced any problems at all in his methods. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of like World War II documentaries where the B-17s fly on a mission over Schweinfurt or something like that, and when they come back to their base in England, uh, most of them are shot up with flak, some are, have feathered engines, some can barely get home. There's always one that comes home without a scratch. You know, just nothing. And I think Audubon somehow 
goes through all this without a scratch. And just to exemplify that briefly, here is his portrayal of the pileated woodpecker on the left. And I know the one time I've seen pileated woodpeckers was at a place called Cold Spring, New York. And uh, it's just across the Hudson from West Point. It is a place, some of you will know, where many of the munitions for the Union Army were made during the Civil War, particularly the artillery. And when the occasion when I visited it, um, it was off limits. Uh, there were fences and barbed wire. Um, I was going there with a graduate student who was interested in the Civil War. I didn't really want to trespass. He said, come on, let's just go. And, and you know why they were, it was being fenced off is because they were turning it into a history theme park. Like they were kind of leveling its ruined remainder and creating it as a place with walkways and placards and so on. And as we went through the fence and looked up, there were these pileated woodpeckers. And I would just draw the simple Moral, they're huge, you know, it's 18, a woodpecker that's 18 inches uh, in size with 28 inch wingspan. Um, a number of them under the canopy of the trees. And I guess from this story, I took away the moral that you must trespass to behold the spirit of a place. Because I felt some, in some weird way, these creatures were more than any historical notation could give me uh, were sort of consummating the, the spirit of this place. And the spirit of trespass and also toxicity was in me, in me too because, I mean, this is a place where they made millions and millions of rounds of ammunition. It's also, there's a Superfund site just down the road, like uh, a, a fallow field uh, where there was a battery factory. You have the feeling of it being off limits, of it being poisoned. And that's where the vision happens. I'm saying Audubon didn't experience any of that. You know, he was blithe. He was, uh, his methods cost him no pain. And, you know, the, the spirituality or the religiosity of his images and of his calling as a portrayer of God's creatures, I think, was upon him or was part of his self-mythology. These are his barn owls from 1833. And the wings are what fascinate me in this. Um, even as we get beyond the methods and get beyond our imagination of the pin pricks that would have, and the pins and skewers that would have held that wing in place, for example, and this wing here on the board, we revel in what, what is given to us, this wing, for example, which seems almost in a Nietzschean way to be so robust and so over-splendid with life as to be dizzying. The, the plumage is a, is a poor word for that, the kind of intricate lightning-like zigzags of black that are barred and laddered across this uh, owl's wing in infinite array, to me connect not only to the sky and to angels' wings, as if to imply some div divinity to life being beheld on the quick in the raw, but also to satiety, uh, to, um, to, to, to food, to nurture. Uh, as Aubrey Beardsley says that the, the very veins in the eyes of the moth that, moths that one could behold are rich and rich to, to glutton, to, to, to gluttedness with the tapestries they've eaten. You know, there's a, a sense of both the creaturely and earthly and um, devouring uh, power of the creature as well as its kind of uh, otherworldly wingedness that Audubon alike wishes to call to our attention. And so the wings are particularly fascinating to me in his works. This is also from 1833, the rough-legged falcon uh, on the left. Um, but beyond that, you know, I can imagine as we entertain the idea of Audubon as having some kind of mystic connection with a religious nature, uh, that there's even a concept of what uh, an art historian would call, you know, after Vorberg, um, Nachleben, you know, or actually capturing some kind of primal feeling that certain works of art across time in disparate places disparate eras 
can uh, somehow portray. So Niccolo Darca's um, bewailing of Christ from circa 1460 in Bologna, for example, on the right, figures this is a detail, uh, screaming in pain and anguish and sorrow at the body of Jesus before them. Uh, there is absolutely no relation between this wing and this flowing drapery here, except unless you believe that at certain moments in the history of art, following Vorberg, um, artists have access to these primal states that exist in the world apart from art, like fear, uh, pain, uh, ravagement, and sometimes those things against the odds make it into art. Um, from Caroline Van Eck's book about living the, the living image and this concept of Nachleben, I get this piece too, which is one of the Nereids from the so-called Nereid monument at the British Museum in London, uh, which was discovered in Turkey in the late 1830s by a sometime ornithologist, Sir Charles Fellows, on a trip to Asia Minor. Uh, so this too would be not just in our separated, skeptical view of the world and of art, uh, not just a, 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 another and separate manifestation of this or that style or ideology, but instead a kindred arrival back at something that actually exists in the world. Um, force. Uh, this is from a funeral monument. Um, anguish, I mean, how, however you want to call it, like some, something that exists outside of art and which it would be the power of art through who knows what means at certain points to actually alight on and portray. It must be that the artist who could imagine himself so empowered would consider himself a mystic in some way, and I think that's true. Audubon, in this portrait, which is at Harvard and is done after Audubon's death, I believe, uh, fo following on or as a copy of a portrait by a guy named uh, George Healy, uh, I think conveys that. It's the Enlightenment uh, philosopher for sure, the Enlightenment philosopher with a gun, but in nature, uh, but the emphasis on thought and a kind of penetrating stare, uh, a stare that is at us, I suppose, but also seems to be off in the distance as though contemplating his own thoughts and the synergy of those thoughts with the world at large. He is in the way that 19th century paintings are often kind of um, declensions of earlier art, um, a saint, uh, like in this Caravagesque painting from the 17th century of St. Jerome, uh, a saint in his study, except the study is now more recognizably the world out there and the book, you know, which is this fateful device of mediation or of truth, depending on how you look at it, has been supplanted by the gun uh, as the more obvious indicator of that which is direct. Um, in any case, Audubon as the mystic, and I'm gonna give you three examples of his belief in his own mystic power to communicate or connect art and life, to, to make life live on the wing, on the page. One way he did so was by uh, imagining himself a visionary. The passenger pigeons in America, the millions if not billions of them could have been seen by many people then, but Audubon's one of the few who wrote down what he saw in a kind of mystical language. I cannot describe to you the extreme beauty of their aerial evolutions when a hawk chanced to press upon the rear of a flock. At once, like a torrent and with a noise like thunder, they rushed into a compact mass, pressing upon each other towards the center. In these almost solid masses, they darted forward in undulating and angular lines, descended and swept close over the earth with inconceivable velocity, mounted perpendicularly so as to resemble a vast column, and when high, were seen wheeling and twisting their continued lines, which then resembled the coils of a gigantic serpent. This is in Kentucky in the 1810s. This is about an otherworldly vision, if you like, like what constitutes like a, a kind of heavenly apparition in an age of enlightenment. Um, 
Audubon portrays that. His portrayal is all the more mystical in a way when we consider that the passenger pigeon, as many of you will know, despite, its, um, despite the fact that it would take like three days for a flock to pass over, three days, not six hours, three days, were rendered extinct um, by, by the late 19th century. Um, and why? It was just through hunting, actually. Yeah, not through habitat loss or anything like that. Second uh, example of Audubon as the mystic concerns his, his relationship with his, I guess you could call him frenemy, um, Constantine Raffinesque, who is shown there on a miniature on the left, um, who was Audubon's contemporary, born in Turkey, and who taught at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, and who was himself a notable, though overshadowed, uh, naturalist. So there's a, there's a piece that Audubon wrote in 1830 called The Eccentric Naturalist, which describes a visit of Raffinesque to Audubon, and it's basically Audubon saying to him, you know, you know, it's like a kind of boot camp of, um, of, of natural history here, and let me see what you're made of. Um, and he really, it's, it's sadistic too, so be warned. Um, the way became more and more tangled. He's leading Raffinesque on a kind of uh, wild goose chase in effect. I saw with delight that a heavy cloud portentous of a thunder gust was approaching. So he's happy actually that this guy uh, who, had, who had gotten on his nerves because he was, Raffinesque was staying at his house and he had, he, had, he had taken one of Audubon's violins and was using it to swat the bats in the room. So that's like the immediate context. That's according to Audubon, and you never know with Audubon. But in the meantime, I kept my companion in such constant difficulties that he now panted, perspired, and seemed almost overcome by fatigue. Like, you think you're a naturalist, you know. Let me see what you're made of. The, the thunder began to rumble, and soon after, a dash of heavy rain drenched us in a few minutes. The withered particles of leaves and bark attached to the canes, because they're in a cane break, you know, which is basically like you have to shove through main, by main force through it, it's so thick, um, stuck to our clothes. We received many scratches from briars, and now and then a twitch from a nettle. Mr. Dutty, so he's using a... Um, pseudonym, that is Raffinesque, seriously inquired if we should ever get out alive of this horrible situation. I spoke of courage and patience and told him I hoped we should soon get to the margin of the break, which, however, I knew to be two miles distant. <laughs> he threw away all his plants, emptied his pockets of the fungi, lichens, and mosses which he had thrust into them, and finding himself much lightened, went on for 30 or 40 yards with a better grace. But, kind reader, enough. Uh, I led the naturalist first one way, then another, until you know, even I had nearly lost myself in the break, although I was well acquainted with it, and kept him tumbling and crawling on his hands and knees until long after midday. So, you know, you ever hear of the ego of the artist? Uh, as just a general principle, well, Audubon, you know, befittingly had a huge ego, and his competitor was there, and, you know, very sadistically, he, he uh, made the guy pay. So, visions, um, it's hard. You have to, ever, you know, it's hard. I may be calm, I may fly home without a scratch, but it's hard. You have to bust through cane break, buddy, if you want to do this. Here's my third example of being a mystic, and it has to do with this gentleman here, portrayed in a painting from 1795, and it is the great English romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. This is by an artist named Van Dyke, uh, English artist. And I think of Audubon and Coleridge together in the following way. Audubon, like when he's in Edinburgh and London, he's always just impatient. He's got ants in his pants when he's at these different social engagements. I don't want to be here. Uh, yes, I'm the best dancer here, and I understand everyone wants to dance with me. That's fine, but I really would prefer to be back in my woods, you know, alone. And that's, you know, the romantic impulse, and Coleridge puts it so well in his poem called Lines Composed in a Concert Room from Circa 1799. Nor cold nor stern my soul. So he's saying, look, I'm not a jerk. 
I'm not cold and stern. That's the first line. Yet, I really detest these scented rooms where to a gaudy throng heaves the proud harlot her distended breast in intricacies of laborious song. Okay, so it's misogynistic, but it's, it's very, and it's very direct. This, these, meaning like the assembled people in the, in the uh, concert room, feel not music's genuine power, nor deign to melt at nature's passion-warbled plaint. But when the long-breathed singer's up-trilled strain bursts in a squall, they gape for wonderment. So they, they think like that's life, this, this poor kind of theatrical art form. But at the end of the poem, Coleridge says, but oh dear Anne, so he's summon, summoning a kind of uh, humble street singer in effect, a, pe a peasant, uh, thy voice remeasures whatever tones and melancholy pleasures the things of nature utter. So here's that concert between nature and language so in danger in America with the disappearance of the trees and with them, so I say, the natural language. Birds or trees or moan of ocean gale in weedy caves or where the stiff grass mid the heath plant waves murmur and music thin of sudden breeze. That's not just portrayed in Anne's voice but is synonymous with it. When you look at Audubon's drawings up close, not the prints, but the drawings, you know, there's this intricacy of pencil marks to portray, it seems, as Jennifer Roberts says, each feather, almost. And that graphite has an iridescence. And it's like the graphite is being made to portray the glinting of light on the wings so that there is no difference between art and life. There's one big issue, though, and it's an unresolved one for me, and I'll, I'm sure you all will have opinions about it and think about it, but it is to what extent in his mystic and really extraordinary pursuit of life itself, did Audubon miss almost the central fact, the salient thing in his endeavor, which I would describe as the radical otherness of nature, of creatures, of the natural world. So on the screen is his snowy owl, snowy owls, male and female from 1831. And when I see these owls, you know, I guess I again think of romantic poetry and again think of the meditation on the, on the otherness of creatures and hence the otherness of the world and of our capacity to take that otherness within ourselves as the true measure of our own grace. And to what extent is Audubon with his, you know, um, it's not the killing per se, it's just the mastery, the, the sheer confidence. To what extent does he miss that otherness? So here's my example from romantic poetry. It has to do, it's the famous Boy of Winander story from Wordsworth's beautiful epic autobiographical poem called The Prelude, one, the version of which I quote from is from 1805, the Boy of Winander series, uh, episode from book five, well, the book the fifth. There was a boy, ye knew him well, ye cliffs and islands of Winander, so in the lake country, many a time at evening, when the earliest stars began to move along the edges of the hills, rising or setting, would he stand alone beneath the trees or by the glimmering lake, and there with fingers interwoven, both hands pressed closely palm to palm, and to his mouth uplifted, he, as through an instrument, blew mimic hootings to the silent owls that they might answer him, and they would shout across the watery veil and shout again, responsive to his call with quivering peals and long hellos and screams and echoes loud, redoubled and redoubled, concourse wild of jocund din. So mimicry, the amazing ability of this young man to, if you like, to sort of be at one with these animals, to imitate them such that the creatures themselves believe that he is one of them. You might say that what's to dislike about this, but Wordsworth understands that this is a very limited way of apprehending what is really going on. And this is what he says. 
and you could also put a but in there, and or but when a lengthened pause of silence came and baffled his best skill, so he's not hearing anything back, he's not getting the call back, then sometimes, not, not all the time, sometimes, in that silence while he hung listening, and this is where the otherness of the world and of ourselves really comes, comes into being, a gentle shock of mild surprise has carried far into his heart, penetrated, the voice of mountain torrents or the visible scene would enter, again, penetration, unawares into his mind with all its solemn imagery, its rocks, its woods, and that, notice, uncertain heaven received into the bosom of the steady lake. So it's when we're not imitating, when we're not mimicking through our skill and our, if you like, our boyish uh, or childish abilities that we somehow receive something which is more mystical, stranger, more disturbing uh, also. Audubon's owls, you know, are, uh, I leave it to you to think about, I'm thinking about it myself, about to what extent they share that Wordsworthian sense of the otherness of the natural world, and again, arguably, that that is the thing, that the naturalist to pursue the creature would need ultimately to be in quest not of the hide or the pelt or the feathers so much as that unknowable thing that each creature embodies within itself. So I thought a lot in this lecture about roadkill as being a, a kind of modern instance of all the things I'm talking about. This is a photograph by a photographer named Brett Cole, taken very recently from Klamath, Oregon, so just on the Oregon-California border, of a barn owl of the kind I just showed you on the left in Audubon's picture with its you know, wing patterns that are so beautifully testifying not just to the power of, 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 of the skies, you know, the wings essentially being instinct with those skies, as Rilke says of a sculpture of a bird that Rodin made. But also, you know, glutted and satiated with all the mice that this creature has ever eaten. I think the question, the ethical question, if you like, about this picture, about Audubon, about this lecture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is to what extent does the representation honor, again, the otherness of the creature? And we will all have different opinions. But in my sense, the, the sheer fact that this photographer has made this image, that he has stopped to notice it and to portray it, constitutes what the writer, the naturalist writer now, Barry Lopez, in his book Apologia, which is about roadkill, um, says is two things, a paying of respect, and also, maybe more deeply, a technique of awareness. I know one time I ran out of gas, um, and I was just waiting for the AAA man, and it's amazing what's at the side of the road. Just, it's kind of, uh, uh, it's otherworldly, whatever it is, even if it's just a soda bottle, it's strange, it's forgotten, it's another world. And so, if I come back to what I started with, which is the, the medicine bag at the Nelson Atkins, and I think about the hold it's always had on me, I suppose what strikes me about it is that for me, at least, it does portray this otherness of nature, and my specific way of understanding it is that by being adorned, by being festooned, by having all sorts of bells and, as it were, whistles attached to it, by being transformed into an artifact, the, the thing is allowed to be itself in its radical otherness in a way that a simple mimicry like Townsend's stuffed rabbit could not achieve. That art is art when it 
does not portray art, but portrays something that it could never be, which is life. And that's why I have the sense, for example, of the ground that this creature walked on, of its movement on the ground. Those things come to me as uh, vividly, at least to my imagination, by virtue of its, its aesthetic transformation here. Um, art in the highest sense makes or creates the life we would otherwise never know, and what life in its radical otherness could be more intensely other than the life of a creature for whom, you know, as it's been said, there is no history, there is no before, during, and after. It's always the present tense, so that every single present tense that this creature ever experienced, ever, every wayward glance and, you know, desiring stare, uh, is somehow allowed to live across time by virtue of its aesthetic transformation. Um, that otherness might seem like the skeptical distance or skeptical opposition to what I spoke of as the Ojibwe way of believing in the perpetual uh, um, spirituality of this, of this creature, but I don't think it's different really. Different, it's not different in feeling, it's different culturally, but it's not different in feeling because, again, for me, taking in the otherness of the world is a way of feeling, for once, something that is not me and that is not registrable and that makes me feel the strangeness of being alive. I suppose it's animals that make me feel that the most. And as it pertains to history, let me just say this last because it's not just art, but it's history here. Um, history, art history, for example, has been, it's been called the melancholy art. And looking at this, you can really see why, in a way, if you switch your focus, because as, as magical as this thing is, as ever living as it is, it, it still is something from long ago. Uh, it's, in a way, equivalent to the cracking pattern on a, on a painting, let's say. We, his art history is melancholy because it's always coming upon these remainders or ruins from the past. Michael Ann Holly, the great art historian, wrote this book called The Melancholy Art, which is about this very topic, and for some strange reason or another, I can't figure it out why or how, she and I are often invited on the same panels. Uh, <laughs> so I know her work very well, and I must say it's, I am in complete agreement with it. So, it's hard to think then that history is anything other than the coming upon remains, taking something like the 1830s and basically the whole thing, not just one bird, everything is a stuffed specimen in a drawer. Woe be to the cultural historian if that is what he or she finally has to deal with. But I always take it more naively that the principle is to not like gruesomely shock the dead into life, but rather to understand that things live on, the past lives on, it is the way that history, uh, by not being history, that is by not just accepting things, you know, um, as, you know, uh, the, the, the pastness of the past, can find that which is still very much alive. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.